amen and amen. Um, Jesus came to the earth, and there was a lot of things going on as Jesus came to the earth that had already been established. Systems and traditions and, and various things. So part of Jesus coming to the earth was to establish the kingdom of God. But as he's establishing the kingdom of God, he's got to explain how citizens of this new kingdom that was coming to this earth were going to have to operate and have to live. So a lot of Jesus' ministry is changing our perspective to see the value in things where we didn't see it before. Okay? That God is trying to... That Jesus didn't come to answer our questions, but that's what we really like him to do. We like it if Jesus just comes in, answer this question, and then I can move on with my life. But Jesus doesn't come to answer our questions. He comes to question our answers. So that we might reevaluate through relationship and live this thing out. So God wants to bring heaven to the earth, right? This is his prayer, the, the Lord's prayer, it's dubbed. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're trying to bring down the reality, the values, the, the uh, citizenship, the laws, the, the, everything that's in the kingdom of heaven, God wants to manifest through you and I as a church into the earth where people say, whoa, the way they see things is so weird and wacky, but there's something about it, I just love it. That it would be otherworldly. And so part of that is learning on how to see people. How do I see people? And which people do I value? And which people do I not value? Hmm? Um, because how many of you know it's easy to value some people, harder to value other people. But Jesus is trying to get us down to the brass tacks where we say every human being is created in the image of God has oh hello there mm. the Barry White effect thanks Tony that every <laughs> sorry that every single person has equal value hmm? So we're trying to learn values here. And James is going to help us with this. But Jesus is going to help us with this. And James was Jesus' brother. So I think this is where he picked it up. Stand up, Miss Carolyn. Stand up, Dwayne Mattingly. This is going to make it even harder choosing you. Um, stand up, Becky. Who's more valuable of these three? None of them are valuable. Well, so, sorry. Let me... <laughs> Is there another three that's available? Who is more valuable? They're all equal, right? So God's saying, you get that. Now live that way. You sit down, guys. So that's the idea. It's something that God's not teaching us something new. He's teaching us something that we know. Now he's saying, what does that look like when we walk that out? What does that look like walking without impartiality or favoritism but walking the way that God would have us to see so Luke chapter 16 verse 19 Luke chapter 16 verse 19 you all know the story uh, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day well that sounds good 
And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So here, Jesus is painting a picture here, and he's trying to teach us value. And there's this man here who's got it made, things are going his way. And then there's this other man that's, he's, he's got dogs licking his sores. Now, dogs in first century uh, Judea was, this wasn't like we think of dogs, right? Like our dogs are like family members now, right? Like we, we give our inheritances to dogs sometimes here in America. Like it's kind of weird, whatever. But, but, but these dogs were wild dogs, scavenger dogs, dogs that were uh, stray dogs that could be violent and terrifying. And so they were trying to eke out this existence within a realm that people didn't really want them. So they had become skittish and unpredictable. So here's this man, he's laid down, and these wild dogs are licking at the, this man's flesh. So this man's wanting just something that falls off the table, and this other guy is eating, and man, he's feasting. So one guy is dog food, and the other guy's eating king's food. So what Jesus is doing here, Jesus is not condemning people that have money. It's not. Jesus is trying to undo a first century mindset that said, if you were blessed, that meant you didn't have sin in your life, and God was with you 100%. And if you weren't blessed, you no way you knew God. Your parents had sin. Everybody had sin, and you're just the result of that. So one was looked with great value. The other one was looked at as dog food. So Jesus is painting a picture. So the hearers that are originally hearing this are drawn in. There's somebody of value, and then this other guy, no way he has value. Watch what Jesus does, verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. See, the poor man died alone, but angels carry him. And the angels carry him and put him in Abraham's bosom or his side, or I like some translations say Abraham's lap. That the lonely orphan gets placed in the lap of luxury in God's lap. The rich man is buried, but he's carried by men. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's teaching us value. He's showing us at what catches his eye. That's what he's showing us. Verse 23, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Do you notice there's only a couple names mentioned, right? The parables, Lazarus and the rich man. 
the one that seemed to be nameless and on the outskirts and vulnerable in the fringe of society is named. The one that we would have probably known, rich man. So in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham and Lazarus at his side. Verse 24, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And he sent Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, (coughs) sorry, y'all, y'all can bear with me. Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus and like man are bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So now the one that was just begging to have some crumbs fall from that man's table is now begging that same man he could put his finger in some water and touch his tongue. So the roles of begging have switched. A switch here. And now Abraham informs him that there's a great gulf here and he couldn't cross it anyway. Verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And they said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That don't tell you about the sufficiency of Scripture. That the Word of God is more powerful than an apparition coming back from the dead and saying, Woo, give your life to Christ. Don't worry, be happy. (laughs) Don't worry, it'll be over soon. Yeah. Having a good time tonight. So the sufficiency of Scripture is more powerful than a ghost coming back from the dead. And remember Jesus, this bodes true because Christ come back from the dead and he's walking with guys for seven miles on the way to Emmaus and they're telling him about a guy that got crucified and they don't even understand that he's the guy that got crucified and he's the one walking with them, risen from the dead. And then how does Jesus show them? He goes and opens up the scriptures and shows them how the Messiah must suffer and then raise from the dead. And then it says, their heart, did our hearts not burn within us? And he began to talk with us and open up the scriptures. Well, scriptures are sufficient. If you've got the word of God, it's enough. It's enough. It's enough. So Jesus is teaching us value here. This man that we would have thought when the story started had it going his way. Come to find out, he really didn't. 
that it was the beggar that won out in the end. So Jesus is not saying that we should all become beggars with sores and hopefully someday dogs will lick us and then angels are going to carry us on into heaven. Jesus is saying, change the way you view humans. Change the way you think this person has value and that person has value. Strip all that away. See, God is most valuable. And him, us being made in the image of God means that we all have equal value. And that God is going to do something great and can do something great in people's lives. And this is how great tragedies happen when we assign more value to one person than we do another this is what justifies you in mistreating people you think you've got more value than they do and mostly the time it's in somebody in a servant role you're serving me it's not true they've got value you've got value you got value it's how great tragedies happen it's what Hitler said the Jews were subhuman. How do you okay slavery in our country's history? Not human. Not the image of God. This is how the evil plays its wares into the world personal level and on a national level and on any kind of level. But Jesus is saying, start seeing with new eyes. <laughs> start seeing with eyes that see the value in people. And when once you, what you once saw was ugly, when that begins to become beautiful to you, you'll know that you made it somewhere. You'll know you're starting to make strides when you can begin to see beauty and potential in a thing that you once thought was ugly. And once you see value, you know what you'll do? You'll start calling it out of that thing. That's this whole deal with prophecy. Y'all see my wife doing a different thing? God's showing us value in people and we're calling it forward. We're calling treasure out. There's something in there God's put. You've let it lie dormant and lies and hurts and things have overshadowed it and you've forgotten about it. But God put it in there. So we're calling it out. Calling it out. And if the church don't, who is? Dr. Phil? I'm not going to let Dr. Phil out prophesy me over humanity. Come on now. I'm not going to let Dr. Oz outdo me. What's, that? what's going on? I don't even know what's happening. You know what? Y'all just, just go on. Get me my NyQuil. Oh, my goodness. Y'all, please come back next week. I promise I will be better next week. All right, so James chapter 2, verse 1. Say, wow, what an introduction. James chapter 2, verse 1. And we got it on the screen, but I like, if you got, I like to hear those pages turning and track with me. 
James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man come in in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, it'd say, sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over here or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? All right, so James is saying, like we said before, what you already know, live it. Live it. So here's something that's going on here uh, in James. Now, when he says assembly there, in verse 2, he doesn't use the word church. The word church in the Greek is ekklesia. He uses the word for synagogue there, which is translated in my version, assembly. So what the, uh, the synagogue was in Jewish life, Christian and not Christian, uh, was the center of everything. So it wasn't just church services that would go on there. There would be court cases where people would bring their things before the elders, and the elders would look at the law of Moses and, and try to make discernments based upon what they knew about the law and what they knew about oral commentaries and what other rabbis had said before them. There was all this stuff that was supposed to go on. Also, when there was a court case going on, there's rabbinical literature that tells us that everybody was supposed to wear the same exact thing. So that anybody going into the court case couldn't be condemned wrongly or couldn't know what status they were in, but everybody there had the same thing on. But if we notice here what's going on, somebody's coming in with a gold ring and fine clothes, and others are allowed to come in in shabby clothing. So James here is addressing something within them and saying, look, this isn't the way to show favoritism. This isn't the way to judge things. And this is the theme all throughout the scriptures where we have King David, right? Who doesn't even get asked to come to the anointing session. But where Samuel shows up and is anointing the new king, he goes to all the brothers. Well, where's the... Where, there's this, none of these guys are it. Oh, it's the shepherd man who's not even clean enough to be a part of our church ordination service. But we can go get him. And the Bible says something mysterious here, that man looks on outward appearance, and God looks on the heart. So God has this unique thing that he can do. Like Superman, he can just look at your heart. We don't have that luxury. So we can't afford to jump to conclusions about people. So in order for us to get to see the heart, I've got to get close enough. And the only way I'm going to get close enough is if I see value in you. And if I see value in you and get close enough, I've then got to hear your story. How many of you misjudge somebody on the offset only to find out they're a better person than I am? I found that's happened to me all the time. Or you, you just make, well, why is that person doing this or that? Right? Then you talk to them, and they've got some illness where they have to do this or that. 
then you feel like a real heel, don't you? James is teaching us something here. Don't be quick to jump to conclusions. And don't use people that have means and pretend to be their friends so that they might get you out of a bind. Say, ooh, I'm going to draw close to them. They can help me get to where I'm going. And that's what's going on here because these are poor migrant farm workers that are being oppressed. They're Christians. They're being oppressed by rich non-Christians and they're feeling the weight of it. And so they're thinking, well, what's their way out? They've got two ways. Revolution and war, which James says is no good. The, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Or then there's another way. Ooh, we can play the game and we can begin to befriend ourselves and unite ourselves to people with people with influence. And if we do that, well, then we can piggyback on their thing and then we can get out that way. So we begin to cater to the same ones that are oppressing and crushing us. I think this thing's on. I don't know. think so <laughs> I hope so so this is what James is telling us to do saying don't make judgments like that you're looking on the surface you're looking on the surface a dignitary come in have everybody pull me aside go over there and shake the hand of that Have another man come in who I've been working on, we've been working on. Come to the recovery meetings, now he's starting to come. Hey, what's the story on that guy? He looks suspicious. This is a true story. I'm not making this up. I say, well, that's a guy I've been trying to get to come to church. Don't tell me that ain't in the church. Sin. Let's just call it what it is. It's sin. It's making a, a judgment that is not grounded in truth. And the Bible says that the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. And if the church can't do that, then we can't do anything in the earth. Where are we at here? Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? Oh, thank you. To be rich in faith. Yeah, I lost my spot. Rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man, not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called. So James is trying to bring them into the reality. Now in the ancient world, the court system was really lopsided. And the person with means and a name could easily make false charges against someone that didn't. And the court case would just go their way. So James is saying, are these ones that are dragging you into court and that you've got this beef with 
But because they've got some kind of influence, you're going to now try to befriend them and manipulate them and use them in order to get your ends and your betterment and your good. See, it plays both ways. And so James here is calling them out on their stuff. He's calling them out on, on what they're doing and the life that they're living. He's trying to bring them into non-partiality and, and what God would have them uh, to live in. That's what James is trying to do. Um, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James, he just don't back up, does he? Man, Pastor James, go for it. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Now some of the Jewish teachers of the time were saying there are heavier sins and lighter sins. And what James wants to do is show, no, the word of God is all interconnected. It's all interconnected. That's why when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, because that one's likened to it. But he sums up all the Ten Commandments, the moral code, Decalogue into one commandment. That can't be split up. Two commandments that can't be split up because they're both hinging on each other. So we got the first four commandments, which deal with us honoring God. Don't put any idols before him. You know, put him first. These kind of things. And you got your bottom six commandments, which are about, you know, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't do these things that deal with relational. And Jesus just lumps them all into one and says these two are, this is what it's all about. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. He's putting it all together. He's saying there's not some insignificant little thing out here, and then, oh, the big heavy-duty stuff's out here. He's saying, no, it all hinges on these, and if you fail in anything, you failed to do the one. Who's loving God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then doing something shady? The only way you could do that is if for that moment you quit loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and then do that thing. So James is saying there's not lesser and greater sins. There's not this thing. It's all connected. Every disobedience is connected within the Word. And so James is saying if you're failing this thing that you don't think is a big deal, then you failed the whole law. What is the whole law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So favoritism, discrimination are against the law of love. The royal law, he even calls it. Saying that there's a higher law than what's the law of the land. The royal law. can't remember who it was. It might have been John Locke who said, oh, he's a philosopher and a lawmaker and he's an Englishman, but we took a lot of his stuff. Oh, he said, once, once the legal matters have been exhausted, 
He said, there's an appeal to heaven. There's an authority over the authorities that are in place right now. It's an appeal to heaven. Aren't you glad there's an appeal to heaven? So it means that the law belongs to God. There's a higher court than the human court. So Jesus redefines this. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where we first get that. Do not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Well, that's pretty tough, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. But then Jesus really messes us up. You ready for this? Check this out. John 13, verse 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. How? Love your neighbor as yourself? No. That you love one another just as I have loved you. So now we're into a new standard. Because I might not love myself. And if I don't love myself, I'm not going to love my neighbor. I'll only love my neighbor to the level that I love myself. Now Jesus says, forget loving yourself. You love them the way I love you. So now our standard's different. It doesn't matter how much I love myself. How much does Jesus love me? Oh my goodness, Jesus loved. I can't even measure it. Okay, now love your brother and sister like that. Love like that. There's a time in Christian history called the Desert Fathers. And they would run off into the desert barely drink enough water to survive and barely eat and just say, the world is so corrupt, we're going to stay out here in the desert. And we're going to have visions and great things of grandeur and we're just going to seek God all the time. How many of you know the rub isn't in isolation by yourself? The rub is when you start rubbing elbows with somebody that's supposed to be a brother and sister in Christ, they can't get their act together. See, that's where it's at. That's where the battleground is. Not in isolation. In relationship. Heaven forbid me rub elbows with someone that's different than me. That has a different background than me. God forbids a different color than me. Oh, oh, oh. Come on, I know I'm in the fields of lily white, but you can, you can shout right now, and if, if you really believe that, maybe you don't. I don't know. Maybe you'll believe it. Eventually. Verse 11. For he who said do not commit adultery also said don't murder. If you commit adultery but do murder you have become a transgressor of the law. So the law is interdependent. You fail one you're in violation of them all. And so there were some revolutionaries within that time saying here's how we're going to get power from Rome we're going to go to war against them 
And God wasn't in that. And they rose up in 70 A.D. The temple gets destroyed. Everything gets destroyed. And James is telling them here in the 40s, that ain't the way to go about it. God's not with you like that. That doesn't mean that there are some wars that aren't just. There are just wars. Wars that need to happen, must happen. But James is giving them a path to freedom. But if they would have submitted under that yoke and said, God, vengeance is yours, and we're going to walk this thing out, that God would have been quick to honor that and to remove that yoke. But there's a time to fight. But it better only be after our knees are bloody trying to hear the voice of the Lord for ourselves. Knees better be bloody before you go to war. You better know that it's righteous. Better know. Better know. Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But get this, mercy triumphs over judgment. Man, well that's a cherry on top we needed. Thank you, James. Give us some relief there. So the freedom we've received from the gospel is the freedom to obey the law of God. That's the freedom you've been given. See people live in crazy lifestyles and say, well, I'm just free, living in grace. Say, oh, be so careful. Because <laughs> Hebrews said, who's going to trample over the blood of the Son? And live in direct disobedience. If by the witness of Moses, if the witness of two or three in Moses' day would, would, would kill someone, what's going to happen to the one that tramples the body of the Son of God in excuse for their sin? What's going to happen to that person? The grace of God empowers you to live out the law of God. The love of God. And that doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. So don't put some unfair pressure on you. But grace enables you. Grace enables you. It doesn't make you lazy. The Apostle Paul was a man of grace. And look at his life. Is that lukewarm or pitiful? Beautiful. It was wonderful. It was, it was like, is this even possible? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Undeserved mercy triumphs over deserved judgment. So since we are, and I think this is where James is getting at, you've got millions of dollars, you've got two pennies, you're both just as poor. 
because you both need Christ the same amount. So Christ, James here, cuts everything out from under us, gets us all on the same playing field, and then says, you need God. But then he also gives us value because he shows us what God was willing to do to rescue us. So God has given us value. He's given us mercy. And not because we earned it or deserved it, because we did some great thing, but just because God is that good. That's it. It's just because he's good. It's just because he's good. It's just because he's good. So God says, if I'm this good that I pour out my blessings on you and that I forgive you, would you extend those same things to those around you? Would you see every person as valuable, made in the image of God? So James here is trying to teach us how to see. But to see the way Jesus sees. And that's what we're trying to learn. And sometimes we're stumbling through this thing. Man, I was driving the other day. Some person. I don't know why people think they've got to stay in the same lane they're going to turn in seven miles down there and then go as slow as they're going to go as to turn that lane, but they're going to stay in that lane, and they're going to go slow, and they're going to leave their blinker on, and they're going to not turn till seven miles, and I'm going to be on their bumper, and there's going to be this guy who's not paying attention, who's going to drive at an approximate speed that's nearly the same that I can't get over and go around that person. But in that, and I just say, God, let mercy triumph over judgment. And maybe you're keeping me from a wreck on down the road. <laughs> Change the way you see things. And that's what God's wanting us to do. So it's not going to look perfect. It's going to look pretty crummy at times, but God's given you the grace to do it. I think it's Peter. I can't remember where at, but somewhere in First Peter, I believe, it says, God's given you all things pertaining to godliness. <laughs> and he's already given you all things pertaining to anything that you need to walk out in your life. You just got to step into it and just try. Just ask God to help us. All right. We better pray. Lord.